Hey, we really want to thank Simply Safe for making this podcast possible. Noah is a fascinating guy. You'll learn an awful lot. Simply Safe has been there for this program for a long time, but more importantly, they are there to keep you and your family safe. This is a group of people that have completely turned the home security system upside down. There's no contracts. There's no hardwiring. There's no salesman that comes to your house. You're like, would you please just leave? I'll sign. I'll sign. Just leave. You are smart enough to figure out what you need. You can count how many windows you have, how many doors you have. You can install it in about 30 minutes. I know I've done it myself and I'm not handy at all. <laughs> I come back, you know, and I put something together from Ikea and uh, there's usually about 15 parts left over. I have no idea where they should have gone. Anyway, anyone can do it. It'll keep your family safe. It is the top level security and you won't believe the price. Simply safe. Free shipping right now and a 60 day money back guarantee. Just go to simplysafe.com slash Glenn Beck. That's simplysafe.com slash Glenn Beck. Today, I'm going to spend time with a guy who goes into work every day and does battle. I mean, and he holds his own. He is a contributor to MSNBC, frequent guest on shows like Morning Joe, where you can find him flanked and outnumbered by a whole bunch of people who at times you think might be frothing at the mouth just a little bit, waiting to see him fail. But his goal is to bring a conservative voice to a anti-conservative part of the media with a lot of influence on public opinion. He is is taking one for the team, if you will. He is associate editor of Commentary. That's a conservative journal. He has recently authored a book that I think is extraordinarily important. It's about social justice. He deftly compares the social justice left and the white nationalist right. He is a guy who understands Nazis, socialists, an awful lot alike. He examines the pitfalls of the political system based on tribalism and looks at the growth of woke capitalism and what it means for all of us. He is incredibly smart. He uses big words that I don't understand. He's very eloquent and has his finger on the pulse of America with a unique view of our past, our present, and our future. I remember in 2008 being called a racist, conspiracy theorist, whatever, getting it from all sides when I said, warning, social justice may sound good, but it is antithetical to absolutely everything you think it is, what it sounds like, and what it was with the Catholics. Yeah. So um, the critiques of social justice in this book aren't really new. <laughs> right. If Robert Nozick did this, Frederick Hayek did this. Um, we've just forgotten all these lessons. Right. Uh, and as you say, 
If you don't really have a lot of experience with social justice act activists or not in your daily life, you might think this is a pretty unobjectionable notion, just uh -huh. thinking about freedom and equality and mm -hmm. righting true historical wrongs. Mm -hmm. um, and it is that, or at least it was that, but in the hands of its activist class, it has become the antithesis of the American idea. But isn't it, because uh, I want you to, I want to first delve into what it is, you know, historically, et cetera, and then what it has become. Um, it's a well start start with the Catholics in the sure. 1800s. Yeah. So in the 19th century, um, Jesuit philosophers in the Catholic Church were seeking a way to create an alternative theory of social organization to compete with the Enlightenment, a very secular Protestant Enlightenment, because their experience with the Enlightenment in France wasn't the experience that was shared by Englishmen and Scotsmen who, mm -hmm. who developed these sort of ideas. Um, the Catholic churches were, were sacked and Priests were assaulted and killed and idols to self-worship erected. So they were very skeptical of what the cult of pure reason could reason you into. Correct. Uh, and also the idea that um, Adam Smith's invisible hand should be the font from which charitable works spring was something sort of anathema. It shouldn't be the pursuit of self-interest that benefits society. It should be devotion to God. And so they developed a theory of social justice that was much more like charity. Um, it developed into the, the ecclesiastical rerum novarum, which has some collectivist elements to it. It was a way to combat the symptoms of society that were leading uh, to the development of socialism and Marxism. Mm -hmm. um, but fast forward about a century later to John Rawls. And John Rawls put a lot more meat on these bones and made it seem, made, created the idea of social justice that we now no, he did, he advised a series of thought experiments so we could think about justice as like a finite commodity. Only so much exists in the world and it needs to be distributed justly and evenly so that everyone can have access to an equivalent amount of social justice. How do you do that? You create institutions that are dedicated to these distributions, idealized institutions, perfect institutions. And the distributor, the enlightened distributor, operates from behind a veil of ignorance so that they cannot know the object of their distribution and satisfy their own biases. Modern social justice advocates have turned against the philosophy mm -hmm. that was supposedly is the, is the foundation of, their, of their, their thought process. They think the veil of ignorance is morally obtuse. How can you have a just distribution if you don't know who the objects of your distribution are? Who are the oppressed and who are their oppressors and who deserves to be lifted up and who is due a comeuppance? Uh, and even Hayek and, and Nozick note that Rawls abandons the veil of ignorance, too, whenever it becomes inconvenient to realizing the sort of just distributions that he envisions. Mm -hmm. This is a feature of this movement. It is not a bug. It cannot see individuals as individuals. It doesn't pursue justice in the kind of ob objective quantities that we see it in a courtroom. It, it is. I mean, every statue of justice always has a blindfold. Always. And it is the principal idea of of a just West that you have to treat the white and the black and the rich and the poor. And we haven't always done that. But the idea of true justice is it doesn't matter who you are. Yeah, no, it uh, it has it has developed into an antipathy towards individuality. Um and it sees people not as people, but as avatars of their particular tribe and treats them as such. And it is a dehumanizing philosophy in that sense. Mm -hmm. And once you dehumanize someone, you can do a lot of things to them. Um, we're not the first society that has begun to experiment with these ideas. They're sure. pretty old ideas. Mm -hmm. um, and the, when I had the idea for this book, I was in Ukraine. Uh, mm -hmm. I was on a, a government-sponsored junket there. 
the post-revolutionary uh, administration was sending people over influencers and they wanted to talk to them about what they were doing, building a civil society. And I met a lot of very influential people and very smart people who were committed to creating a Republican culture in this post-Soviet state. It was a noble project. But I was very disheartened when I sat across from the country's chief prosecutor who explained to us at the time that they had no interest in and it wasn't in their interest and therefore not in our interest to see them prosecute anybody who was engaged in violence in the Maidan revolution on their side. And why should you want to see that? We're all on the same team here. Uh, that was the kind of justice, a, an idea of justice that is common in the rest of the world. But it doesn't look like the kind of justice that we see in a courtroom. It looks to me a lot more like revenge. Yes. And you're feeling that now. Let me stay in the Soviet Union for a second. Lenin... Um, first of all, everybody's starving because of his policies with the farmers. Um, and then it, it, it starts to work itself out a little bit. And the farmers start to make some money and they're starting to sell their, their, uh, their, uh, their harvest. And it's starting to pick up and things are kind of okay. And Stalin comes in and he finds a group and because he wants he needs to say the farmers are capitalists now and we got to we got to shut this down. This is social justice is is the greatest tool in the hands of anybody gone bad or anybody who even believes something good and needs a highway to do it, because you can say, as he did, they're stealing the wealth this these crops belong to all of us. I have another story from the Soviet Union that's in this book. So affirmative action as we know it was essentially invented in the former Soviet Union. Bolsheviks inherited a vast Russian empire. It was multi-ethnic and the Russians governed it like viceroys. And they did so in a very chauvinistic way. Russian chauvinism was a problem, not just from a governing standpoint, but from a, the a, a paradigmatic standpoint. This was an assault on the kind of egalitarian global communist order they, they wanted to build. So they developed indigenization policies, lifting individuals up in these individual republics who are representative of the ethnicity in those republics. But that was only one half of this program. The other half was to disempower and disadvantage ethnic Russians. Ethnic Russians would be denied a sense of nationality, of nationalism. They were to be punished for this, the approach that they took to governing these territories. This policy was a disaster. Mm. These people, the, most of the individuals who were lifted up, a lot of them were incompetent apparatchiks. Many mm -hmm. of them were liquidated in the purges. But the kind of backlash that was sown as a result of this um, policy among Russians resulted in its exact opposite. Um, Russification was engaged in. The, the individual cultures mm -hmm. were, were tamped down. And a sense of grievance among individual Russians manifested in a backlash against these, the republics that was probably the result of the sense that they had been robbed unjustly of a sense of individuality, of a sense of, of commonality and nationality. So uh, again, the story is, and the story throughout this book is people who, with the best of intentions, convinced of their own competence, made everything worse. tell you i have been watching the rise of this and and tired of warning against it um 
we're seeing, and I want to get into identitarianism, um, we're seeing all of this just turn around and backfire. I mean, uh, uh, an example I think Americans would be able to relate to is I think Barack Obama had the greatest opportunity of any president ever. If he would have been transformative in nature on race, if he would have been more like the King message, uh, more like the Gandhi message, more like Nelson Mandela, it would have changed everything. But he believed in collective salvation. He believed in social justice. And social justice feels like vengeance. There were some times when Barack Obama was transcendent on race. Uh, in particular, I'm thinking of the wake of the verdict in the Trayvon Martin killing trial. Um, that was a transcendent message. Uh, but he delivered different messages for different audiences. Yes. That was the message for, for the country. And right. it was very healing. He was very, if he would have been the guy who spoke at the Democratic Convention in, what was it, 04? Right. It would have been transformative. Yeah. Would have been transformative. But even if it wasn't him, the this started to, it's been going on for a long time in the universities, but this started to go forefront where the average person started noticing a change and it is accelerating so rapidly. And we're starting now to say, I think Kavanaugh was a breaking point where people, average people went, wait a minute. This could happen to me. This could happen to my son. This isn't justice. This is not. Wait, what's happening here? Maybe the most disturbing element of that episode for me was the way in which you saw a deluge of people who were influential in media and politics and entertainment and just about every facet of life come out unashamedly and without any reservation to say that this is the result of uh, a privileged white man who's rebelling against his own circumstances, just reducing him to the accidents of his birth and stereotyping from that basis and ignoring that the, the paucity of evidence before us was such that you didn't really have a lot to pour over. So why not get into his accidents of birth? That, in any other context, we would call pernicious prejudice. Oh, yeah. But it was the kind of thing that was not only acceptable, but lauded. So here's what I don't understand. And, and, and I ask this sincerely. I have actually talked to um, uh, w uh, one of the daughters of one of the writers that went to uh, prison uh, for... Um, you know, be one of the Hollywood 10 during the, the roundup of the communists in the fifties. And we completely disagree on things, but on this, we come into line on, and I don't, I literally don't understand how can people who say they represent a group of people who have been afraid to say who they are because they were kept in a closet or a group of people who have seen jail time for what they believe in a political sense, people who have been oppressed. How do they not see all that's happened is you're flipping the script instead of instead of Gandhi, Martin Luther King, judge me by the content of my character, judge me by merit. Martin Luther King said, live up to the words of your founding documents. We throw those out now. Yeah, that, those appeals to common humanity are um, judged to be insufficient to the moment by so, the social So what's wrong with us? 
Well, How come we're not seeing that? So this is a common human impulse, right? I mean, this the the kind of tribalism and identity politics is so is so common and ingrained and, and universal that it must be an evolutionary trait. So the fact that we have these structures in this country that are designed to thwart those impulses is not a natural condition, and we're essentially rebelling against our own humanity. Mm-hmm. It has worked in an entropic way in part because the founders were so far-sighted. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is not a natural condition. We are rebelling against nature. You start with Kurt Vonnegut. And you say it's actually worse than what he saw in 1961. Tell the story and and uh, and, and explain how it's worse, because he came up with a pretty dystopian look. Yeah, it's uh, Harrison Bergeron. Um, so... The, the story of Bergeron takes place in the distant future in 1961, but it's <laughs> right. not too far from now, right. um, in which society was characterized by uh, negative discrimination, the kind of discrimination we were talking about in the Soviet Union. Individuals who have uh, advantages bestowed on them by nature, natural advantages of birth, whether they look uh, attractive or they have a unique athletic abilities or they're uh, intelligent, they are disempowered by the state, given... Uh, various uh, impediments to deny them those privileges. So, a mask if you're beautiful. A mask if you're beautiful, acoustic distractions if you're smart, you know, weights around your legs if you're athletic. Um, the design being social equality, but downward social leveling. Um, and in order to envision this scenario in 1961, which was kind of anathema to, to the American consciousness, he needed to create this big brother character, um, which would impose these conditions on people. I don't think he foresaw the situation that we're in now where there is no imposition from above. This is being demanded from below. This, if it, this is a sort of bubbling up from beneath. It is by popular demand that we are seeing these kind of demands for downward social leveling. Um, and that's much more dangerous because you can't just vote out the demos. You, is it, is it coming for the most part? And I'm not talking about the the social justice warriors who know exactly what it is and what they're doing. Okay. But there are people that I just saw an interview with a bunch of, uh, uh, Columbia students. And you talk about this in your book with, with the Nazis, uh, the neo-Nazis here. Um, guy goes on campus. He says, blacks want to have separate, but equal, Dorm rooms, classrooms, everything else. And all of the people on campus are like, well, I mean, I think that's fine if that's what they want. I think that's fine. Without even thinking, you know, this, this, this is segregation. This is, we got rid of that. But as I was watching it, I thought that is, for, for some, that was motivated, I think, by Look, I don't care what people want to do. If you want to live together, live together. You don't want to live together, live over here. It's fine. So this, this, this twisting of what of right and wrong and universal, endless truth, part of it is coming from our own uh, strength of just wanting to get along. Right. Just wanting to do the right thing. Yeah, I mean, there's one thing to be said for wanting to steep yourself in a lifestyle that complements a particular field of study. 
I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with that. The new, um, although it might manifest in, in something you could call segregation, that's not necessarily healthy, but it's not an assault on the American idea. What's a little different and a little more disturbing is now the, the pretense that this kind of seg segregation has anything to do with study is being abandoned. You see non-faculty administrators now saying that we need to have essentially segregated spaces in all forms of campus life, segregated lunch tables even, because it prevents, quote, uncomfortable learning. It's insane. I, I, I'm, the have, you ever, have you ever been, have you ever at any time learned anything in your life that was worth it that didn't cause you some sort of discomfort, pain, questioning. Right. Now, this is, this is the Nothing. essence of competition yeah. and markets. Uh, you, there's no advantage to be gained in stasis. It's, 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 it hurts right. when it's I work out. Immunization, well, sure. I work out, but... <laughs> I neither tell you the truth. To my wife's you confirmation. Should, you should, otherwise you'll end up looking like me. Yeah, I'm, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, though... Um, you know, this is the sort of thing, and I said this is bubbling up from beneath, but this is seen as the most, health, most healthy approach to, uh, uh, to developing a sort of uh, communal instinct, because the notion here that segregated areas of lifestyle and com complete separatism um, is the way to create some form of racial enlightenment uh, seems to me a very difficult way to combat racism. You're basically telling people that the only culture you're you're allowed to appreciate is essentially your own. I don't know how that combats the kind of uh, the kind of hatred that social justice advocates say they want mm -hmm. to fight. But when you boil it down, when you talk to them and you start, you know, really working through these issues, it's not. It doesn't become about addressing hatred and creating more common understanding and commonalities and universality. It becomes steeping yourselves in these grievances, holding fast to these grievances because they are empowering. You just said with Kurt Vonnegut, you just said uh, that we would accept it and bring it on ourselves. I think we've gone one step worse. I think we are. We're incentivizing people to be intersected. If, if you can find a way to a grievance, congratulations, congratulations, you're 10 points for you. Find another one, another 10 points. We are celebrating. It, it is truly a rejection of everything we've ever been as a nation. We are celebrating our differences in a negative way. We are we are looking for things that say kept us down where Americans were always like, I don't know, Rocky Mountains. I got a horse wagon. Let's go. You know what I mean? Not me. I'm glad I wasn't around at that time. But we were never put off. And we never, the people used to always say about America, and they still do, which is saying something. You know the thing I like about Americans? Is they're almost naive. They're, they're, they, they trust everybody. We never turned each other in. We never turned on each other. We didn't matter. We had our problems. But in the end... We were in this together. We're, we're not. Nothing. It, we're being dismantled bit by bit. And it, you know, people are smart. They see incentive structures. They know that there is capital in victimhood. Um, and when you create an incentive structure for a certain type of behavior, you're going to get more of it. Mm -hmm. I wish I could say this was unique to the left. This book is mostly about the left. But not exclusively. Shouldn't be. Because the right is just as attracted to these ideas as 
as much as the left is. They understand a marketplace when they see one and they're engaging in it. When I was at Fox 2009, 10, I kept saying, Democrats, be careful because you're not always going to be in charge. Don't do this because you may not think it's a problem now, but what is it that you're creating that's coming in after? Now we have Donald Trump. Now I find myself saying, Republicans, don't do this because what, you're, what are you doing? You're creating somebody else that's going to be a bigger dog. We, we, we jump both sides. We want our vengeance. We want to shut people up. How does this end? So, I mean, I have good news and bad news. Okay. Uh, so my start with the bad news. Oh well, that's that's unfortunate. Uh, <laughs> I just because I just wanted some happy news. Go ahead. Start right, with well, the happy news. Well, you got to get to the ha- you got to get to the bad news for the happiness. So okay. the happy news is I don't think the kind of downward social leveling that social justice advocates seek is possible in this country. The institutions in this country are not equipped to meet out the kind of justice that they seek. So that's the good thing. I don't think these, uh, without a, a whole entire remaking of the constitutional order, will but we see that kind of Aren't we, I mean, just look, look sure. at the Green Deal. Forget about all the car, cow farts and all of that stuff. Just the line in the new Green Deal that it is to reform our system and change our system into a system of uh, uh, ecological and social justice. Yep. It is a fun. It is that fundamental transformation of the entire economic system. Absolutely. So I read the Green New Deal, the proposal, the subcommittee proposal, the yeah. FAC, all that stuff, and it is only tangentially related to environmental remediation, right? Yeah, yeah, of it, yeah. Most of it is about these ideas yeah. about um, progressive desiderata that they've been seeking for generations. Uh, the, the notion... Wait, excuse me, what's a desiderata? Oh, desiderata, uh, you know, desired, objects okay, of okay. desire. So you're, the notion here that you're going to have through the Green New Deal, the federal jobs guarantee that FDR wanted in 1937, tomorrow, seems to me unlikely. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the notion that you're going to have Medicare for all and you're going to wipe out a $900 billion industry tomorrow in, the, in this one proposal? Mm-hmm. Seems unlikely. Mm-hmm. So, yes, you're moving towards a transformation of society, but it is one that has been at least 100 years in the making, and so far it has encountered a series of impediments. I'm hopeful that those okay. impediments are not going to disappear tomorrow. The problem, however, is that the social justice advocate who has developed these moral imperatives will encounter this resistance and, and then... react in one of two ways one despondency withdraw back off say your political activism isn't worth it and the second is to radicalize to resolve to attack the foundations of these institutions because they are so immoral and so unresponsive that they cannot be allowed to stand and that is in my view wall street why we have seen so much political violence in this country over the last Mm -hmm. 10 years more than we've seen in a generation Mm -hmm. began with occupy and it has only gotten worse Mm -hmm. right and the left fringes are at one another's throats in the streets literally knifing each other in the streets um it's sort of the narcissism of small differences there Mm -hmm. that these two groups resemble each other in more ways than they don't but yeah, they're at each other's throats. And I think that is a product of the fact that they are react, reacting with frustration because their demands cannot be met. Do social justice warriors, for instance, um, you look at the people up in Portland and, um, uh, and Antifa, and <laughs> you have a hard time 
squaring the circle on this one on hang hang on you're against fascism but you're doing these things and you're against nazis okay well so am i but you're acting an awful lot like a Nazi. <laughs> right. I mean, they might have subtle differences, but when it comes to social justice, when it comes to really socialism and the way the state operates, they are just two sides of the same coin. Everybody was horrified by what happened in Charlottesville, as we horrified. should have been. But it wouldn't have come as a surprise if we had reacted as we should have to the events in Sacramento a year earlier. In the year prior, you had a demonstration of permitted white nationalists rallying under fascist flags, and they were attacked by the proto-government, or proto-government, proto-organization that formed Antifa's called By Any Means Necessary. Mm-hmm. And these, these two groups, rallying under a communist flag and a fascist flag, attacked each other in the streets. People went to the hospital. There were serious injuries. It was a melee, video evidence everywhere. And I, we didn't talk about it. It was America's Weimar moment. And we did not talk about it. I don't think we wanted to see what was happening, but we should have. What do you mean by America's Weimar moment? It was the moment in which and it's probably un, it's unlikely that we're going to see the, the you know, the effects of the Weimar, you know, republic here. Incredible, you know, inflation and political instability. But the notion well, we can talk about our debt on another episode. If I go ahead. To, sure. <laughs> Um, but the notion here that we are beginning to see the elements of identitarian politics manifest in street violence is, to me, a warning sign of the kind of instability that was experienced in the interwar years. And it's hyperbolic, sure. But the notion here that we're experiencing something that could become that kind of the kind of formative experience that Hayek had uh, is, to me, something that shouldn't be ignored. And yes, we would address it with the terms that are relevant to, to creating the kind of urgency that I think the crisis demands. You're the first person I've talked to that's in mainstream media at all that uh, even begins to understand identitarianism. It is, it is so pernicious and, um, and yet so easy to see how people can fall into, in my opinion. Um, See if our understandings are the same. If you're over in Europe, you're in Sweden, you're a racist if you fly a Swedish flag. It has to be the U flag. Um, you You are being forced to lose... What is uniquely you as a group of people instead of saying, you know, like Walt Disney, this is fantasy land. This is adventure land. This is tomorrow land. You can go to all of them, but they're different. They're all they're all each different with their own personalities. I was in Sweden and somebody said, um, you know, well, we just don't really have our own culture. And I said, what? I said, I've never seen architecture like this any place else I've ever been. Okay, I'm not finding that in Bangkok. I'm not finding that in Chicago. I'm not finding that anywhere here. This is your culture. And they're being forced to abandon it at the same time. uh, Injury upon injury, they are saying also, you're a racist if you if you believe that what you grew up with is good and right. noble and has a reason to be preserved or even talked about. 
you force people as soon as somebody comes in and you have a population that feels that way and they come in and say, no, no, we have a noble culture that can go awry that fast. Yeah, you shouldn't shouldn't be surprised that there is a a backlash to that sort of thing that manifests in really extremist ways. It's what happened to Germany. So we have something like that here on the social justice left, which is, they embrace a contradictory notion. At the same time, we don't. America doesn't have a culture. It has this <laughs> sort of hodgepodge that um, has been appropriated, ill-begotten goods, essentially, from other cultures. And so it is, at the same time, while we don't actually have a culture, the culture that we do have is not our own and is misbegotten. And as a result, we shouldn't, we shouldn't welcome or celebrate anybody assimilating into it. That is a form of captivity. And the, res- and the result is that you have the extremist response to that, which yeah. is to say essentially not only that we have a culture, but it is a, is a supremacist notion of that sort of cultural identity. Um, group identity, again, is an evolutionary trait. Mankind is, cannot live in the kind of hermetic individual, individuality that is envisioned by the extreme libertarian idea of social organization right. simply doesn't work um to well, wait wait explain what is the extreme the, ex- the extreme idea of mankind is divorced from the kind of civil mediating institutions non-governmental institutions that result in community right we, we yeah churches community organizations yeah. what have you creating a sense of of, to, of common purpose yeah around a shared identity articles of confederation is too close to anarchy and so right. the constitutional but you can live that, much freer than this but and that you do have systems and that and the american civic religion around the constitution mm-hmm. has sufficed for a form of political identity in this country for the last 240 years and it's yeah. a pretty healthy one i mean yeah. the, the first amendment protects you from the government infringing on your right to freedom of speech right Mm -hmm. but at the same time we don't view the first amendment as though it was just a protection against government intrusions it has become a religious idea about our uh, capacity to express ourselves in in whatever fora we want um and that if you personally infringe on my right to free speech that is an infringement of that civic religion it's a broader Mm -hmm. understanding of what the constitution really was Mm -hmm. and it's one that i think is especially healthy um is especially is especially healthy when you get to the alternative which is advocated by social justice advocates which is much more around cultural identity based in the kind of way that europeans see cultural identity um your blood and soil nationalists and the individuals who see uh see cultural identity as sort of a shared global common humanity uh on the left these two things i think are are antithetical to the american experiment also the notions that are shared by the the social justice advocates on both sides of these coins that you do not have the capacity to rise above your station into which you were born that your accidents of birth put you on a course in life that is essentially predestined um that you cannot navigate this you know unnavigable labyrinth of of prejudices and the obstacles that are put before you by unseen ubiquitous elites um without somebody holding your hand and somebody essentially selling you something somebody has to na- help you navigate this this environment because you are not equipped to do that on your own these are pernicious ideas they are they're the platforms on which uh individuals seek and pursue and achieve power uh and they're they're getting more and more power as a result of this philosophy So um, talk to me, you're a, 
uh, scholar on Russia. You f- still follow it pretty closely? What's happening in Russia? Not as closely as I would like, but yes, I, I studied it in undergrad and grad. Okay. Um, um, do you know who Alexander Dugan is? Yes. Okay. Good for you. Fourth political theory. Have you read that? No. That's his, that's his book that uh, has said uh, communism didn't work. Fascism didn't work. Uh, capitalism doesn't work. But we're going to take the best of those, <laughs> frightening, and uh, come up with a new system. It's the fourth political theory. And when you read that, when you read, when you read, you may be different than I am. I, I read Das Kapital and was like, this is ridiculous. I, I, can, I mean, it just, it was gobbledygook to me. Some people read it and they're like, oh, it's fantastic. His theory is ridiculous. And beyond that, it is terrifying. Okay. He, he ties it directly to end of times kind of philosophy. World has to burn down completely before it can restart and give a rebirth. It's terrifying. But his arguments, which are being espoused by people, honestly, like Steve Bannon uh, and others, if you don't know... If you don't know what he's talking about, if you don't know where this leads, it is so seductive. Yeah. How do we back away from this this nightmare when everything in culture is pushing you the opposite way? Yeah, so we're we're a victim of our own success here, right? Uh, we are we are so prosperous and so comfortable. And the generations, we have now have at least two, probably just one generation, my generation, but another coming up behind me, that have never experienced anything resembling political violence. They have never experienced the kind of uh, systemic uh, public sector oppression resulting in violence in the streets that other societies are much more familiar with. And so they have begun to romanticize it. Having never experienced themselves, it is essentially it is it is the bloodlust of the bored and the comfortable, and that's why I think you're beginning to see in part these manifestations of violence in the streets because these individuals have never experienced political persecution, and so they've begun to fantasize about it as a very effective tool in the tool shed, just another one to affect a political end. Uh, but they do actually convince themselves that they are oppressed. Yeah. I think they genuinely see themselves as oppressed again because they do not know oppression. It's an insult to the rest of the world. I mean, you, oof, I hope the Chinese never hear about <laughs> our oppression here. I was, I was in Mexico city with my wife for two days and I interviewed, uh, women who, uh, were slaves that were just freed by one of my charities. And, um, one of them literally had chain marks around her neck okay you know that famous picture of the uh, the slave with his shirt off and he's standing in a chair and or sitting in the chair and you could see the whip marks that's what she looked like it was horrifying and i'm spending two days with these guys and we're talking about you know what they went through and everything else and this woman i i give her a blank piece of paper and i'm cutting something uh, with her filming her. And I said, I want you to say your name 
And then I want you to say, I was a slave, but no one writes my story. My life is a blank piece of paper and I write my story. She said, no. And I said, why? She said, because I was never a slave. They might have called me a slave, but I was never a slave. Chain marks around her neck. Okay. I fly home and my wife and I are just like inspired and devastated. We land. I look at the TV and people are crying on TV in America about the oppression that they're feeling from statues in the parks. And I about lost it. I was. Yeah, there's a distinction, I guess we should make between oppression and injustice. There are injustices. There are racial grievances. There are discriminatory actions that are taken by public institutions that are manifestly unjust and that should be combated with everything that we have in us. But that's a, that's distinct from oppression, the kind of political violence that we've seen in other societies. <coughs> Excuse me. That's right. Um, talk to me a little bit about um, uh, where we're headed with social justice, do you think? Where are the who are the who are the pernicious organizers of social justice that we should be? watching for what are the moves that are coming that we should be aware of well it's much easier to see them on the left than on the right <clears throat> on the left it has become such an organizing principle an unchallenged unquestioned organizing principle that it's just in the water and people talk about social justice as though it was just a nod to just being a good person mm -hmm. you say it like you know I used to hear um, my boss talks about how in the 1980s or so you would append and the environment onto whatever it was you were talking about because mm -hmm. who hates the environment right it just marks you as a good person correct social justice has taken that place yeah. so you just say social justice and it appends social basically onto just any other word and it modifies it and destroys its its meaning is what hayek said but also it marks you as somebody who's socially conscious um they are out in the open they're easy to identify on the right it's much harder to see them. They are underground. Who are they? Um, philosophers of the dark enlightenment, which is exactly what it sounds like, a, uh, a, an attack on enlightenment philosophy. People like Curtis Yarvin, who writes under the pseudonym Mencius Moldbug, who uh, advocates for an uh, anti-democratic philosophy, an anti-republican philosophy, who was attracted to Donald Trump's movement, and Donald Trump's movement was attracted to him. He was apparently in contact with Steve Bannon when Steve Bannon was in the White House as a chief strategist for the president. Steve Bannon. I, see, I, I give, and, and you know, I assume you know where I stood with Donald Trump during the election. I thought he was an extraordinarily dangerous man because of who he was surrounding himself with. Beyond that, I don't think he really cares about any. I don't think he believes anything deeply except tariffs and maybe immigration, maybe immigration tariffs. I know he's got that one down. Eh? No changing him on that. The rest is, I don't know. Yeah, bring them in. Sure, I'll, I'll play to them, too. Steve Bannon, however knew exactly who he was. And you have this movement in Brexit the same exact way. You're mixing, and, and the media does this, and it is incredibly dangerous. They take everybody and they mix them together. Steve Bannon, Glenn Beck, same. 
No, not at all. Completely different universes. Anyone for Brexit over in the European Union? The same. No, they're not. They're not. How does the average... um, How does the average... Uh, conservative give me some way of knowing who's who if you're just somebody who doesn't really pay attention how do you know who you're standing with well i'm so donald trump in 2016 embraced a lot of ideas that are antithetical to conservatism right um among them some of the stuff we talked about notions like you as an individual are being Um, robbed of your station in life, that which is your due, by a series of ill-defined elites, obstacles are put on your path, and that you have to appeal to a strong hand to restore it. Um, Wait, let me me play devil's advocate here and have you answer to them. Well, we tried the Tea Party. We tried everything else. We tried to stand up. They're not even listening to the people anymore. They don't care. It's a cabal. Who's they? The Republican Party. It's a cabal. Oh, well, yeah. So if (laughs) what is the objective here? You're saying that um, reduced spending and and fiscal. Yeah, well, it's a Tea Party things that, you know, hey, we want. Because Donald Trump's movement wasn't against fiscal profligacy. No, I know that. No, I know that. I'm not I'm not defending. Mm -hmm. I'm playing devil's advocate. Okay. Uh, If you don't know, I was not anywhere close to the Trump campaign. Okay. Um, so I'm just playing devil's advocate because mm-hmm. this is what I heard. This is what I heard. Glenn, we tried to do it the right way. And it is so stacked up with corruption and greed and the media. You're never going to burn it down. Burn it down. Yeah, I heard a lot about that. Also, what has conservatism conserved was the question I was posed very frequently. And that to me is so myopic and just simply rejects objectivity. Uh, Barack Obama's presidency all but ended in 2011. The legislative phase mm-hmm. of Barack Obama's presidency was over. Mm-hmm. They confirmed a couple of judges when they had, but when they lost the Senate in 2015, that was the end. Mm-hmm. Conservatism served as a bulwark against mm-hmm. change, which is what conservatism tends to do. And if you reject that, you are rejecting what conservatism's fundamental elements are, which is preservation, not radical transformation. And then the burn it down crowd really wants radical transformation. They're not entirely clear on what that transformation is, but they're consumed with the belief that everything must change, that these institutions that have preserved this republic for 240 years are failing them and their families, and therefore they are not worth preserving. That's not conservatism. That's something. No, I know. And I don't think that that is. I think that might be a feeling, but I I could be wrong. As maybe hopeful thinking. It may be a feeling, but when push comes to shove, it's it's kind of like I think the Democrats, the leadership, has so miscalculated. Um, you know, they started miscalculating with Occupy Wall Street. Hey, these are just great kids. No, they're not. No, they're not. They don't believe in what you believe in, if you believe in the Constitution. Um And they embraced it and they used it as fuel, thinking that they could control it. And I think it's out of control. And uh, and, you know, you're watching Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and everybody else just brushed off to the side. And it's because there is a feeling on both sides. This 
doesn't work what we're doing right now. But when you get right up to it, if they nominate somebody like Bernie Sanders or they nominate somebody who's like, you know what, the free market system, I'm not sure. Unless we have an economy that is depression, I don't think Democrats will vote for him. It's it's I would I would bet that, too. Democrats, so I by think the way, that, or did the Occupy Wall Street again thing very, yes. very uh you know, miscalculating and in the pursuit of political expediency by embracing the women's march Correct. leadership. Correct. And in so far, in, in, in doing that, legitimized a kind of critique of the liberal order and a critique of anti-Semitism yes. that has become, again, Correct. Uh, mainstream in the party. Right. And so the right, I'm, I'm hoping, and I'd love your opinion on this, I'm hoping that the right says burn it down, but they have a decent respect for the the institutions that we we must have um uh and i don't i don't know if they go there unless we hit real economic trouble and then i think all bets are off yeah they might um i i also think and again the trump administration has improved from the campaign period, in part because there's no intellectual infrastructure in the Republican Party for the kind of identitarian policies that they wanted to see manifest. Um, They had to fill this administration with some conventional conservatives. And for the most part, you had a pretty conventional Republican administration, some exceptions. Um, What the Democrats did when they embraced the Women's March was elevate the the, the tenets of intersectionality into a governing ethos, sort of a a mandate for... um, political organization intersectionality is really central to social justice thinking it's a pretty legitimate explain it for anybody who doesn't know what intersectionality it's a very legitimate idea in an academic context it's a way to think about as a thought experiment it's a way to think about how prejudice manifests in the real world so you and i are born with disparate traits some of those traits are more discriminated against than others so an individual who is say white and male will experience less prejudice than a someone who is white and female a black man will experience less prejudice than a black woman because women experience more prejudice than men. A Native American lesbian will experience more prejudice than all of them and so on. Um, again, a valid idea. As an organizing principle, which is what the, the Women's March was dedicated to, it is self-defeating. It results in your organization tearing itself apart, which is exactly what the Women's March did. They couldn't see their own allies as mm-hmm. allies, even if they agreed with them, mm-hmm. because they possessed disparate traits, some of which were seen as more oppressive than others. So the members, white Jewish members, weren't really allies, mm-hmm. not in the words of Tamika Mallory, because she, the individuals who maybe agreed with them on everything, but also possessed traits that advanced white supremacy, whether they knew it or not. Similarly, this organization embraced people with no political constituency whatsoever, people like Asada Shakur, who's a convicted cop killer living a fugitive from justice in Cuba or the minister Louis Farrakhan mm-hmm. people you could have jettisoned easily without any losing any political capital indeed you would gain some in the process but to do so would be to legitimize the prejudices against which they claim to fight and so the women's march tore itself apart it was disempowered by this philosophy because democrats had to abandon them but donald trump evinced a little intersectionality himself when he did, he was so disinclined to forcefully vehemently and frequently often denounced the white nationalists who were attracted to his campaign. Mm-hmm. They gave them the idea that maybe our ideas are a little less marginal than we thought they were. Mm-hmm. That is an intersectional philosophy too. Mm-hmm. That is the practice of embracing all 
because you're in a you're a war you're in a war of all against all. You are a combatant in this navigation this unnavigable labyrinth of prejudices. And anyone who subscribes to your philosophy is necessarily an ally as long as they advance these these particular traits. Um, it is it is is a a terrible philosophy for, for political organizing. But the students I talk to, who agree with this sort of thing, think it is a very power empowering philosophy. It helps them understand the world in which they live. It helps them to figure out how to navigate it. I think this is a really deleterious idea. Let me go to the press for a second. Donald Trump's use of the press as, um, as an ax. Help me use the press and what's happening with the press as a way to navigate around um, being used or being riled up for justice and what's really happening. For instance, I'm sorry, but the press is just, I mean, they are who they are. And if they just came out and said, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm liberal. Pretty much everybody who works here is liberal. We don't really see it the same way. That doesn't make me a bad person. That's the way it is. And had respect to say, here's somebody else who's really smart on the other side who sees it someplace else, some, some other way. And you had that conversation, we wouldn't have these problems. Instead, they insist that they are fair and, and, and they're the arbiter of truth. And it's many times, not always, I read the New York Times, sometimes really good stuff in the New York Times, sometimes garbage. People listen to me. You could say the same thing. Sometimes garbage, sometimes really good stuff. Okay, that's fair. Conservatives know that there is a glass ceiling over us. You know, I was, uh, I signed a contract with ABC. I never served one day because they, they put a press release out Care went to the mouse and the mouse folded. Okay. Everybody knows that. Okay. Donald Trump is saying things that people know is true. And instead of going, you know what, the Kavanaugh thing, or, you know, at times the Russia thing really did get out of hand, they just keep hammering back. They're they're winding up their audience. He's winding up his audience. And the person who knows both of you suck sometimes don't know what to do. They are forced to pick a side. Yeah. So as a member of the of the press, sort of I'm not I don't consider myself <laughs> a reporter, but I am, I am in the media. Um, I think everybody goes to work every day wanting to do the best job that they can do. And in the very beginning of this Trump administration, uh, I think there was a sentiment that prevailed in a lot of places in the press where I didn't work at the time. So this is speculation on my part, um, that this was a new phase of history, that we had entered a crisis period and that it was an all hands on deck moment. And it was the fatal conceit of the resistance that viewed American institutions as far more fragile than they are, um, as not as tested and capable of maintaining themselves self-perpetuating in an entropic way um, that they needed to be propped up and that was a terrible conceit uh, it's the kind of thing that moves you from being mission oriented 
from being objectivist first to being an activist. Uh, and I think you did see a lot of that in, in the press. I think you're seeing less of it now, but it is still prevalent. And we could probably, you probably all know who the main practitioners of this sort of thing are. Um, but it is, it is out of a fundamental lack of appreciation for the robust stability that has been the result of American institutions. They can withstand somebody who is potentially disrespects the office of the presidency, for example a pernicious actor, a malicious actor in a position of power and authority. We're actually seeing, I think, one of the greatest experiments in the executive branch that we've seen in a generation or more in the fact that we have a really understaffed executive branch. We don't really need as much of the executive branch as we have because the Trump administration has not fully staffed it. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of that's not great. The, act, the number of acting cabinet level secretaries is not is not wonderful um, but i was very uh, and i have a, a background in in education and diplomacy and i was one of the few people um with that background who was very happy to see the state department sort of gutted um because it it is overstaffed and overburdened and it is um it is replete with this idea that process and process alone is the means to an end that engagement and dialogue is mm -hmm. sufficient diplomacy and that sort of thing needed to be purged and it was fortunate to see that happening but there are there are dangerous things that could result from having an understaffed administration this administration has been fortunate insofar as that it's existed in sort of this period of placidity there hasn't really been an exogenous crisis that's really tested them but also you know everything's still moving along pretty good Mm -hmm. And it's not because the members of the media have their hair on fire every day. Mm -hmm. um, this is the, the country has, has been tested before and it is being tested now and it is withstanding the test. And I think we should all be pretty happy about that. It's amazing to me how resilient this is. I mean, I thought, I think we all did on September 11th when we watched the towers fall, not knowing who did it to us. Just watching. I mean, that was our, you know, to reverse this. That was our Notre Dame in a way that was our that went to the heart of America, if you will. It was Wall Street. That's that was New York. It was strong. It was banking. It was invincible. And they came down and it was like, oh, my gosh, we're fragile. Um, and I have been shocked at how many body blows this country can take. I mean, it since then, it has been almost a nonstop body blow. And we're still standing. We're dizzy, but we're standing. Yeah, I, I think that's you would you would think that that would be something worthy of celebration. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure the critics of the current state of affairs when it comes to you know, the founding of the country and its history and its form of government are really all that interested in learning about why it is so resilient. Um, when I talk about the American ideal, and I read a little bit about this in the book, when I talk about the American ideal in schools and in colleges, I get kind of a hostile response because from the perspective of the modern undergraduate, the American ideal has failed because what they know of the American ideal is that we have never achieved it. And that is sort of a misunderstanding of what the word ideal means, right? <laughs> I mean, it is aspirational. Mm -hmm. We have not improved. You may never achieve it, but that doesn't give you license to stop trying because we have not improved upon concepts like meritocracy, egalitarianism, and English common law notions like the presumption of innocence, which are under attack by these people. Mm -hmm. We haven't made anything better than that. And so you're not at liberty to, to abandon those ideas. But these students don't know what the founders knew. 
because they don't, not only do they not read the founders, they don't read the Federalist Papers, but they don't read what the founders read. They haven't read Burke or Hume or Montesquieu. They don't understand the nature of representative governance and why it is a superior form of social organization, of governmental organization. Uh, so it's a product of ignorance, which is in some ways excusable, but mostly not. Um, Self-imposed ignorance. And it's one of the reasons why we need to rededicate um, to the study of civics. And not just how a bill becomes law, but again, these Enlightenment thinkers that served as the uh, f the philosophical foundations that resulted in the government that we have today. Um, that sort of thing has been lost. I don't think people understand that um, they don't understand social justice. And they don't understand that this movement, postmodernism, is anti it's postmodern. It is anti-enlightenment. Uh, it's anti-fact, anti-study, anti-you uh, know uh, observing. It's it goes against everything the enlightenment taught us, and it it will flip us back into a world of. I don't even know. That's no, conceited, right? I mean, if you think you can remake the world anew, it's probably because you have no idea what the world was before. And, you know, generally that you have a very, very high impression of your own competence, um, which is, so I, I think it's mostly hubris. I mean, a lot of that comes with youth. Um, it's Most of it's beaten out of you, I think, by the real world, but not everybody. Not everybody succumbs to that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I, it's probably a function of ignorance. So, um, the year I, zero mentality. I, I want to go back to what we talked about uh, earlier uh, about um, uh, about this system not feeling right to a lot of people. That we don't even know what the system is that we should be operating on. We haven't been operating on that system for a long, long time. Uh, the Constitutional Bill of Rights, real, true understanding of, of, of this. And what's headed our way with technology? Uh, technology, what we're looking at now, nobody is asking the big questions. Nobody's really, we'll talk about privacy. What privacy? Your refrigerator will be able to report on, you know, whatever. Um, and, and not necessarily in a nefarious way, but the 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 capitalism that we're moving towards by choice is a surveillance capitalism that is the the idea is to be able to predict you as close to 100 percent of the time as possible. Amazon changes from a sales company to a delivery company in their own words, when they can predict 95% accuracy. We haven't even talked about that. <laughs> we haven't even talked about that. And it just that one thing becomes, are you, do you have self-control or self-will? Are you determining your future or are you being shaped for the future? So what kind of impact do you think that'll have on the, on our political environment. I think we're already seeing it. I mean, if, unless we start talking about deeper thoughts and root ourselves into 
what is real until we start until we dis- dislodge ourselves from um, thinking that the end all be all is the wealth of nations and realize that moral sentiments needs to be put with it. We don't uh, survive this until we can say, yeah, that's life. That's life. And define it clearly. How can we possibly expect to live in a world of AI and teach it? Don't kill. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's fascinating. And frankly, I haven't devoted a whole lot of thought to it. I mean, just about everybody who wrote an economics book has also wrote an ethics book. And there's kind of a reason why, um, you know, Adam Smith wrote an ethics book and Hayek's written an ethics book and Marxism is an ethical philosophy. And in many ways, it has very little to do with economics and much mm-hmm. more to do with human interaction, in mm-hmm. part because economics isn't really, it's you know, the dismal science. The science part is really uh, de-emphasized. It's, mm-hmm. it's much more about a philosophy and how to organize societies. I'm, I'm less skeptical about innovation, I think, than a lot of people who, are, who share my political inclinations. Um, in part because i'm not a technophobe no uh, yeah i didn't hear technophobia okay, in, in what you're saying I, you know I, these are reasonable fears and i i can't speculate on them because i haven't devoted a whole lot of thought to the to the idea but i am i am f- uh, hopeful about future economic development de- resulting from technology um in part because all the but just about all the predictions of catastrophe that have resulted you know that, that have been have about economic catastrophe have been the result of this idea of scarcity that doesn't exist, mm-hmm. um, which is again an economic concept. But the scarcity is presumes straight line projection, mm-hmm. just stasis that we do not develop these new resources. Right. Shale was garbage ten years ago. Mm-hmm. We made that into a resource when the American colonists were um, just you know crossing the Appalachian and navigating into the American. Um, Midwest, they saw silicon and bauxite in the soil and it was just dirt Mm -hmm. because there was no value to it. We made these resources into the resources that they are today. Aluminum, you know, was everywhere. Mm -hmm. It was just garbage. Um, the, the, the extent to which you could process aluminum made it more valuable than gold in the, in the enlightenment period. Um, we have the capacity to innovate to the extent that we can create these new realities. Um, and create new economic realities that make the old ideas of, 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 of hardship and want resulting from scarcity seem really naive. Um, so when, when, I, when people, environmentalists, uh, talk to me about you know, the, the catastrophe that is, that is imp- imposing mm-hmm. upon us, you know, with assuming even their own assumptions, you know, I, I say that I will never bet against mankind's capacity to engineer itself out of a problem because mm-hmm. we've done it so many times in the past. That's an article of faith on my part, I suppose, mm-hmm. but it's not unfounded. So, um, but when you're talking about um, innovating your way out, what I'm concerned about is the seeds that have been planted now, social justice, where, where there is no justice, it is vengeance. It is, you have it, I want it. Um, When you have this period of, I mean, you're sitting in a studio uh, that was owned by Paramount to make films, made all kinds of famous films in this room. Uh, That went out. And now, we then it made television and made, you know, lots of television shows. Uh, for HBO and CBS, and now we own it, 
and I'm a disruptor for the people that you go to work for every day at NBC. Um, and the people at the network ladder are doing everything they can to hold on to everything they can as long as they possibly can, but it's going to disrupt. And so will this, what I do will be disrupted at some point. It's going to just get faster and faster and disruption, disruption, disruption in all of that disruption. You have people who will want to manipulate things to hold on, to last longer, to stop things. And Others that will be motivated to pit people against each other because it would be in their best interest. That's what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about that 10 year period where everything's being disrupted and everybody's just trying to save their own ass. Yeah. Well, I, I don't fear the disruption. And clearly you don't either. I mean, as a, as a self-described disruptor, you welcome it. Um, this is the, the creative destruction of the marketplace. And again, as we were saying earlier, nothing, nothing good comes for free. I mean, this is the sort of thing that develops strength and immunizes you and, and makes you a, a stronger, more competitive individual. Um, the disruption is good for everybody uh, in the interim. Yeah, there will be when the, in the transition period. Yeah, there will be a lot of people who will just be displaced and those people will be very sympathetic and they will get the most attention. They always do. But the invisible beneficiaries of the new normal will be the vast majority of those of the individuals who benefit so, from this condition. Agree with you 100 percent. But now put in social justice and social justice warriors in that mix. Yeah. So that's, you know, the, our biggest threat has always been, will always be bad ideas. This is a bad idea. Um, one that springs from a noble place with a very valuable philosophical foundation. And the people who are attracted to these ideas are not bad people. They're good people. These ideas are fundamentally about American ideas. And we should approach them like that. You are attracted to these things because you're a good person. I might agree with you in a lot of these ways, a lot of these ideas, but they are making our lives harder because they are fundamentally at odds with a lot of the ideas that are at the heart of this founding and are making us a less attractive member of a political coalition. That's sort of what I get to at the last chapter of this book, which is basically back to the women's march. The women's march was embraced by the Democratic Party for a time, and then it made itself so unattractive as a result of these ideas that they were jettisoned. They no longer had the political authority that they once held. So the people, so they might have some things they want to get done in government, but they're not going to get them done now because they're no longer the kind of attractive member of a political coalition. And the only thing it wants to do is get to 50 plus one at the polls. No political organization or movement jettisons its own members. Asking them to do that is asking them to abandon their instinct for self-preservation. Mm -hmm. You're fighting against the tide. It's not going to happen. You can marginalize and stigmatize bad ideas. That has been done many times in the past, often through conflict and usually through circumspect um, approaches to uh, to isolating and stigmatizing individual ideas. Democrats and Republicans have models they can appeal to. Republicans marginalize the Birchers over a very uh, long period of time and through circumspection and attacking these ideas in a, a series of, of ways, um, not so as not to make themselves the, the attackers seem um, unattractive. Democrats similarly exposed and removed the communists from the organized labor movement in the 1940s. There are models to which we can appeal if we really want to do this. It's pretty hard to demonize something when 
I mean, I saw an interview with you with about eight people, and you were quite brilliant. Um, Thank you. Fighting there kind of by yourself. Um, and it's a given they hadn't had time to read the book, but their, but their gut-level response is social justice is good. Right. And these are intelligent people. Yeah. These are well-read, intelligent, informed people. So how do you demonize when you have people? How do you how do you expose and demonize yep. when it, y- y- your voice is being relegated really to one channel of people? Well, I don't know. I mean, I wish I had the the, the good answer. There is I'm I'm the very beginning process of trying to expose this ideology and and the alternative theory of social organization that it is um trying to challenge that in a way that it it really hasn't often been challenged particularly for the audiences that i go to i go to predominantly liberal audiences uh on television and universities and the effort here is to start a conversation i've been what is your, been happy with the response so far you? yeah i have been um nobody's thrown an egg at me uh everybody there have been a lot of challenging probing questions um incredulity in a lot of ways but they're listening um and i i think it's in part because we all see the excesses the movement successes are pretty visible and just about everybody even if they agree would say well those guys kind of went off the rails a little bit my mission here is to say that this is not an out of the norm expression of how this philosophy manifests in the real world that is that's a it's a feature not a bug that's the argument I'm making. And there's a lot of hostility towards that. Um, but it is nevertheless, I think, an ines- in of unavoidable and inescapable once you dig down into the philosophy and how it has manifest. By the way, this movement, we'd, we've been talking about big issues, big philosophical issues here all day long. That is not to suggest that the social justice movement is focused on the big ideas of the day. They are increasingly dedicated to small things mm-hmm. and attacking one another. Mm-hmm. This movement's efficacy is demonstrated in getting individuals to supplicate and genuflect before the mob. Mm-hmm. And the mob only has about 72 hours worth of influence. So they dedicate themselves to attacking their fellow social justice advocates, young adult novelists, restaurateurs, artists, comic book makers, pop culture is where you mostly see social justice activism manifest on a day-to-day basis, in part because those are the only people who are listening. I don't want to make the, the claim here that this movement is strong and getting stronger. Some days I'm convinced that this is overtaking all of society, and some days I see them as very marginal and, and lacking influence. I'm erring on the side of caution mm-hmm. in this episode, in this mm-hmm. instance, in the, the the presumption that this is a movement with more power and more authority than is it, it's due it's it's numbers. You talk about you talk about um, capitalist com- companies that are regurgitating this stuff nike is a good example woke capitalism yeah woke capitalism um that's not spreading no that's definitely spreading it's taking advantage of people who are made increasingly naive by this philosophy they don't care you remember what um nike's um uh, slogan was for the colin kaepernick campaign Mm -mm. it was um believe in something even if it means sacrificing everything nike didn't sacrifice anything their sales jumped 10%. Audi did the same thing when they broadcast an av- a Super Bowl advertisement uh, talking about the flawed notion that women make 77 cents for every dollar a man makes. Their sales went up. Gillette's sales went up when they talked about toxic masculinity. Republicans and Democrats who respond to polls 
like this sort of thing. They want their brands to engage in divisive social politics. In part, in my view, the theory I have is that it's because it allows them to engage in politics, which we all see as a good thing. We incentivize that. But you don't actually have to do any of the homework because this isn't about legislative affairs. It's not about political coalitions. It's not about politics as we understand it. It's much more about cultural combat. It mimics the passions and emotions of politics, but it doesn't really have anything to do with politics. And the stakes are incredibly low. All you have to do is buy something. So it's a, it's a popular way to engage in, in political activism today. I don't know if it means you know, the republic is collapsing, but it is a way to take advantage of people who are attracted to these social justice ideas. And the, the best example of that is the story of Fearless Girl, the statue in lower Manhattan um, that was dedicated to advancing the notion that women should more women should be in C-suite executive positions in the financial services industry. This statue, this arms akimbo elementary school age girl, was feted by Democrats as this really powerful attack on the patriarchy. Bill de Blasio said that men were deeply offended by it somehow. I'm not sure if he was certain they were. It's hard to find them. Elizabeth Warren made a pilgrimage down there. Gail Collins in the New York Times said it was the most effective protest against patriarchy since the protest, the antebellum protest that desegregated the trolleys in New York City. Oh, my gosh. This was a commercial for an investment firm. Investment firm sponsored it. Um, it allowed them to evade the kind of scrutiny that they were due because they were transgressing against a lot of social justice norms and some of the literature about how they talked about approaching female investors, you know, appeal to emotional reasoning, kind of pernicious stereotypes. But they didn't get the kind of scrutiny they were due because of this statue. And we later learned why they did it. A Department of Labor audit found they were systematically discriminating against their female employees, paid about five million dollars to 305 women. But they didn't get any of that. Everybody would have seen that coming, I think, if they hadn't suspended disbelief in deference to these social justice ideals about gender discrimination and idealized gender equality resulting in negative discrimination against men. And so they suspended their disbelief and in the process fell for a commercial for a Wall Street investment firm. People like Elizabeth Warren, who can't go two breaths without mm. attacking Wall Street greed, was down there giving these guys a boost. Last question. Uh, how many times have you seen in your studies that this rears its ugly head and then just goes away? It stopped without real negative impacts. So that 72 hour window, um, that's a real thing. Governor Ralph Northam would be gone if he'd have paid attention to the 72 hour window, but he didn't. He said, I'm, if I were to leave office now, according to reports, then he would be viewed as a racist for the rest of his career. He's much better off trying to stick it out and hoping some event down the road gives him some other legacy. So he waited out the 72-hour window, and the outrage went away, and the Democrats who demanded his head have now sort of begun recanting. Um, you see that pretty frequently. Um, Unfortunately, you see the reverse more often, uh, in part because it's an assault on commercial vehicles, commercial entities. Mm -hmm. The Twitter mob, which consists of maybe 3,500, 4,000 people, that's really amazing. angry, um, feels like the universe is coming mm -hmm. down around your shoulders. And any, any firm with a fiduciary responsibility to its investors feels like its bottom line is imperiled by not acquiescing to its demands. And more often than not, they do. 
But if they hold fast for those 72 hours, a lot of times it just goes away. Um, maybe the sentiment doesn't, the notion that there has been some transgression that is due some sort of um, reprisal against the offender persist. But the, it's, a, its effectiveness as, getting, as a vehicle for getting individuals, for example, fired um, from their jobs who have transgressed and just maybe said something inappropriate or maybe done something genuinely inappropriate that is due a response, um, that goes away within that 72-hour window. Um, and you've seen some companies now respond by just not doing anything. You saw Governor Northam and just basically the entire government of Virginia that was implicated in all those scandals a couple of months ago. They waited it out. Um, the movement demonstrates its efficacy by collecting scalps, which is why it's focused so much on its own, because those are the people who are listening. For the most part, if, you, if you're not listening to this organization you can survive its wrath uh and so that's that to me indicates that it's not this overpowering movement that is overtaking our politics it can and i'm treating it like it could because i think it's worthy of that kind of caution but i don't want to overstate the problem i don't think this country is falling into a morass of totalitarian social justice identity politics tomorrow that's great no thank you thank you so much for having me Just a reminder, I'd love you to rate and subscribe to the podcast and pass this on to a friend so it can be discovered by other people. 